I'm Evelyn and I'm a geoholic. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, if this doesn't put you in the mood to podcast, nothing will. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> oh man, I love it. Welcome back, Geoholics. Here we are, episode 183. We've got a uh, great show lined up for you today and an interesting cast of characters. Let me go through some quick introductions. We've got Rex Perry with us. Rex, thanks for being back. Yo, thanks for having me as a guest host here. And this, you're almost like a regular at this I point. I love it. It's great. You've been on a couple times here in the last <laughs> few shows and got some really good feedback. Um, and our guest uh, this this morning, this afternoon, today, what have you, uh, is going to be talking about something right up your alley. Plus, producer Sean can't be here because he's traveling as usual. He, that guy takes more vacations than anybody I know. Yeah, but he does a good job getting the set up, doesn't he? He was scrambling, but I think he, <laughs> he got there. He did a great job. We also got Dr. Nick with us. Dr. Nick, how are you, buddy? I'm good, good. Thanks for having me today. Rex, can I call you T-Rex from here on out? You got know. it. In high school, that was my nickname, so go ahead. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, and he thought he was going to be original with that. <laughs> I was also called Sexy Rexy, but we'll go, we won't go there. <laughs> we'll see how the episode goes before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, there you go. And, uh, of course, me, Kent. I'm here. There you go. I wouldn't be, I, I, no place I'd rather be right <laughs> now, to be honest go. with you. And I got a really cool story. Um, so I have been... I always tell people, if you listen to this podcast, you learn more about me than you'll ever want to know. <laughs> like, even my mom learns things about me when she listens to this show. Um, so I have, over the course of the last year, for whatever reason, been struggling with uh, sleep apnea. Oh, wow. Yes. To the point where, like, I had to go see a sleep doctor. Oh, wow. And the sleep doctor's like, you could die. Oh, wow. That's how bad it was. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And that's like... It made sense. I mean, you know, of course, my wife's like, you snore, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it just got to the point where it's getting really, really bad. And uh, so saw the sleep doctor and they, they said, you need a CPAP machine, right? And wow. I'm like, CPAP? Oh, God, I don't want one of those things. That's, yeah. the, that's like the kiss of death type thing, yeah. you know? But uh, I got to tell you, I got one mm-hmm. and I've been using it for a little bit now and it has changed my life. Wow, really? It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, the quality of sleep that I'm getting is like, any, nothing I've ever had before. Wow. So anybody out there struggling with sleep apnea, <laughs> I highly recommend going and seeing a doctor because it does affect a lot of different aspects of your, your life you mm. know, from a health perspective. And my new slogan is make CPAPs cool again. Okay. What do you think about that? That sounds good. <laughs> All I can say is for the people that are just listening to the podcast today and they don't see the video, uh, Kent, you look like you've uh, you know you, you've lost ten years. You're looking good, my friend. Apparently, He's I, in I, good I, shape. Like, I got a nice glow on my forehead. You know, He's I don't know. Good. He's good. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Um, I do want to make mention of one thing. Intergeo 2023, the Geohawks will definitely, confirmed, be there this year in Berlin. Super excited about that. Uh, flights are booked. Arrangements are made. Agreements are signed. So anybody listening, I hope to see as many of you as possible at Intergeo 2023 in Berlin. Super excited Fantastic. about that. Never been to Germany. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be an adventure for uh, the Geohawks. And I believe Dr. Nick's going to be there as well. Sounds like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely uh, be able to exercise the three German words I can rub together to uh, help us out uh, as a geoholic uh, wander around Berlin. Uh, but yeah, I should be there if, uh, if everything goes according to plan. Definitely looking awesome. forward to it. Awesome. And while you're at it, Nick, why don't you tell us about that opening number? 
Yeah, so I'm going to follow in, in Sugar's lead. Uh, if, if you've been listening to the podcast, uh, Sugar usually reads uh, the definitions and descriptions of these songs, but I'm going to try my best. I don't uh, speak Spanish by any means or, or uh, any of the romantic languages, but the, our opening number was from <laughs> Gypsy Kings. And uh, the only way I can say the song is literally like saying the song and singing it. It's Bumbaleo, right? So <laughs> Gypsy Kings are a group of flamenco, salsa, and pop musicians from Arles and Montpellier in southern France. Gypsy mm. Kings perform mostly a Catalan style, but also mix in Spanish with southern French dialects. Although the group members were born in France, their parents were mostly Gitanos, Spanish Romani who fled Spain during the 1930s mm. Spanish Civil War. They are known for bringing rumba flamenca, a pop-orientated music distantly derived from traditional flamenco music, to the worldwide audiences. The group also originally called itself Los Reyes. So, mm. Gypsy Kings, if you've not heard, they kick butt. And you're right. I mean, this is the perfect music to go podcasting or, heck, after this, it's the end of the day on a Friday. Maybe go hit a happy hour. But, yeah, that was super fun. Drink a couple beers, do some salsa dancing. <laughs> Sounds like the perfect Friday in my book. <laughs> there you go. So, Nick, you mentioned uh, the romantic languages. Would you put pig Latin in that category? <laughs> For pigs? Yeah. I mean, I mean pigs like get together. <laughs> Did you know pigs are one of the smartest animals out there? They have like Absolutely. Dog. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I would like to have one of those pet little piglet things, you know. My, my brother-in-law had one. He's, he lives in Shanghai. Oh, wow. And they had one, but it gets, they get big and they get very awkward. So warning to anybody that gets a little pig, they get big. That's all I'm going to say. And then once they get big, they get eaten. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's hard, hard on the kids when you do that. (laughs) You just got to prep them when they're, when they're young. All right. Moving right along. Uh, We are of course in the Wisdom Wednesdays studio this week. Uh, If you don't know a little bit about Wisdom Wednesdays, it's a, it's basically a bi-weekly roundtable discussion. And what they do is they go over a chapter at a time um, from what we like to refer to as like the serving Bible. So like the books that everybody needs to have on their bookshelf that uh, as it pertains to survey anyways. And the goal really is for everyone to read a chapter, basically a week. And then um, at, at every week they review that chapter and it's like an open forum discussion. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Mm, so, yeah. so to find out more, simply go to wisdomwednesdays.xyz. Mm. Okay, next up, we have the Airworks Somewhat Random Trivia, and uh, Dr. Nick is come, has come well-prepared this afternoon. <laughs> yes. Trivia. So I am looking forward to seeing what he has. All right, we got more big words, so bear with me. Uh, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about land rights because our guest is also going to be speaking towards that. Um, so the documentation of land rights dates to ancient civilizations around the world where written records began to emerge. The specific time and place of the earliest documentation of land rights vary depending on the region. So let's talk about a few of those early land rights uh, examples. Uh, Ancient Mesopotamia, circa 23 BCE, uh, 2300 BCE in the city of Lagash, that's present day southeastern Iraq. The code of Euro Kanagina is one of the earliest known legal codes that address land rights. And interestingly, it actually provided measures to protect the poor and instituted reforms related to land ownership. So even about 4,000 years ago, we realized that the marginalized in society had something to do with land. Uh, You have ancient Egypt, circa 2700 BCE. Society had well-documented land rights and land tenure systems. They used hieroglyphic inscriptions on monuments and papyrus, uh, often mentioned these land grants. Or perhaps you've heard of uh, Hammurabi's Code. So this is circa 1754 BCE. Also from um, the ancient Babylonia, kind of present day Iraq, 
uh, but also known as one of the oldest legal uh, land codes. Or perhaps ancient Greece and Rome, 8th century BCE, also had well-established legal systems, uh, different text contracts, deeds, and wills. And just to throw out the other side of the world, um, around 1000 BCE, land rights in China were also documented. Interesting. Um, and, and texts such as the Book of Rights and the Book of Documents. And uh, they <laughs> discussed uh, principles of land ownership, inheritance, uh, and agricultural practices. So that's a little bit uh, of somewhat random trivia about land rights. Fantastic. That is good. And yeah. uh, T-Rex over here is salivating. <laughs> I know, because conversation right I now. love this. And this is the foundation of civilization. That's what you just said. And we got to get this in front of people. We've got to ring the bell so people understand how important this is. And we are going to ring that bell just a little <laughs> bit more here in just a minute. But before we do, let's uh, move on to the Advanced Geodetic Surveys quote of the week. Okay. And again, this is going to be very applicable to our guests this evening, this afternoon, today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Next to the right of liberty, the mm -hmm. right of property is the most important individual right guaranteed by the Constitution, and the one which, united with that of personal liberty, has contributed more to the growth of civilization than any other institution established by the human race. Mm. That is William Howard Taft. Wow, A.M. Yes. Good stuff. That's awesome. Man, it's like property rights overload today. Yeah, and it's the key. It, it, I think 100%. we're going to get that over and over and over, and we've got to get this in, especially the developing world. But yep. anyway, we'll talk yep. about that. Yeah, we absolutely will. And let's bring our guest uh, on finally. Um, and of course, our guest this afternoon is sponsored by XYHT Magazine. If By the way, you have not received your free XYHT Magazine subscription, just go to xyht.com forward slash subscription. It takes about 30 seconds to get a free electronic version subscription, uh, by far the best geospatial magazine on the market. So be sure to do uh, take those 30 seconds and do that. Before we get to our guests this evening, here's this week's Bad Elf Minute. Hello, Geoholics, and welcome to Bad Elf's Point of Beginning, a segment specially crafted for the consumption of geospatial news, history, and technology. We hope you enjoy the content and perhaps even learn something. My name is Dr. Nick Smolovsky, I'm a geoholic, and I'm here to be your geospatial guide. If you've been listening to the geoholics for a while, you've probably heard me, one of the other co-hosts, or a guest talk about NatREF 2022. Suffice to say, this new spatial reference system is a big deal. Recently, during this July, the National Geodetic Survey, or NGS, unveiled a preliminary version of the State Plane Coordinate System of 2022 called SPCS 2022. This marks the third generation of SPCS following its initial versions in the 1930s for NAD27 and the 1980s for NAD83. The official release of SPCS 2022, along with other components of the Modernized National Spatial Reference System, NSRS, is scheduled for 2025. Hypothetically, quote unquote. The alpha release of SPCS 2022 allows NGS partners and customers to review and offer feedback on the system. This new system will be referenced to the four 2022 terrestrial reference frames, which are part of the new NR NSRS modernization. While this is a preliminary version, NGS anticipates making only minor changes going forward. During the design process, stakeholders actively participated, resulting in significant variation in the number of zones across each state. Each U.S. state and territory will have a statewide zone. 
Most states will also have multi-zone layers covering the entire state, with some states having multi-zone layers that cover only part of the state. Additionally, three special use zones will span multiple states. Requests and proposals for zone designs were submitted until 2021, with 28 states ultimately designing their own zones after NGS approval. General information about SPCS, including previous versions, can be found on the SPS, SPCS website found uh, provided by NOAA. I highly recommend if you still have not heard about this new coordinate system to at least take a look at the website and be prepared over the next couple years for this new and exciting system. If you have any questions or comments about today's POB segment, please reach out to me via LinkedIn or through the Geoholics channels. And that does it for us at B2 Studios in sunny Texas. Live long and prosper, my friends. Okay, our guest. Uh, we have Amy Kokenauer Bettencourt. I believe I got all three of those words right. <laughs> a little bit about Amy before we loop her in. She, uh, she's born in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. She uh, grew up in Holland, Michigan, which is one of my personal favorite places, so I can't wait to talk to her a little bit more about that. She attended Central College in Pella, Iowa, and she also attended Monterey Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. Wow. Her hobbies include reading, hiking, uh breweries, wineries, singing and dancing, of course, with the flamenco thing mm -hmm. there. Her current job is president and CEO of Cadasta Foundation. Um, she has spoke at FIG, Geospatial World Forum, the UN, Global Land Forum, World Bank, GeoBiz, International Land Coalition, FAO, IFAD, half the stuff I don't even know what it is, mm -hmm. uh, but her passions, uh, I love this. Uh, the connections we all have as humans and self-reflection. And we're going to circle back on some of these things. But Amy, welcome to the Geoholics. We appreciate you taking the time to be here. I am so excited to be here, guys. Thanks so much for the invite. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we get into the meat of the matter, let's do a quick icebreaker. And this is, of course, the Trimble Pro Point icebreaker. Oh, boy. Um, so, Amy, here we go. What is one word that best describes you? What comes to mind? I would like, I would like to say fun. All fun. right. Love it. Love Excellent. it. Excellent. And I, I think uh, Nick made mention of that. He's like, Amy's fun. We're going to have a good time <laughs> with her. I may, so. or may, have used, uh, may or may not have used the word riot. She's a riot. I'm just excited about being able to ring Rex's bell today. What can <laughs> there I say? You go. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got my attention right now. <laughs> we're going to have to reel Rex in. I have a <laughs> All right. Let's get to know Amy just a little bit. So, like I said, I love Holland, Michigan. I grew up in Chicago, and when I was, uh, as I was growing up in Chicago, we spent a lot of time in Michigan, South Haven, you know, Traverse City and those areas, and I just, I always loved Holland. What was it like growing up there? It was great growing up there. You know, it is a, it's a town, as, as, as its name would suggest, that was founded by Dutch immigrants, mm -hmm. and um kind of famous for its tulip time they have incredible um every may they'll have a big tulip time festival where all these tulips come out and line the streets and um there's parades and so as a as a young person growing up there i i marched in the tulip time parade from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade right. um i was yeah i was in the marching band i played the flute in the marching band and you know it was good times marching in the parade we had lots of tourists and it's a lot of fun. We also have a, 
one thing really cool about Holland is that we have um, a, a over 250 year old uh, windmill that was donated to the town from the Dutch government. And they wow. literally took it apart piece by piece, brought it over in a ship, reassembled it. And to mm -hmm. this day, it is a working mill. It still grinds flour. You can buy the flour there. It's really cool. It's called the swan. The swan. Cool. So, wow. So yeah. were you uh, oh, go, go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask, did you march in wooden shoes? I did not <laughs> march in wooden shoes, but I will say that I actually, I, I take that back. When I was a kid, I did march in in wooden shoes because I had to wear my little Dutch costume. Oh, wow. Okay, and my authentic. mom, like, yeah, so we had to do the wooden shoe thing. But as as in the marching band, we didn't do wooden shoes. No, um, no we didn't We didn't do that. But, yeah, and, and the Klompen dancers were the famous oh. Dutch dancers that had all the traditional dress from all the provinces in the Netherlands. I always tell people from the Netherlands, like, if you want to go back in time and see your country's culture, you need to come to my hometown because... <laughs> It will blow your mind. Like most people have never seen that yep. in the Netherlands. Cool. Yeah, for sure. So I got to ask, were you ever crowned the tulip queen? No. Oh. I was not crowned the tulip. No, that was, <laughs> it wasn't my jam. What can I tell you? They used to have a little saying in Holland, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. So, you know, you could see the resistance rising in me at a very early age. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of the things I love about your bio is the fact that you value self-reflection. And uh, a quote that came out of your bio, it says, you are consistently working on being your best self so you can give your best self to others and you want to support others to do the same thing. Talk about that just a little bit and why that's important to you. Yeah, I mean, we are all works in progress, aren't we? I mean, we, we none of us ever really arrive at anything. It's always about working on ourselves. And I really feel like... Um, it's important for each person to kind of understand how we show up in the world, um, how we impact others, and uh, how that impact can show up in our work and our relationships and everything we do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm into health and wellness. I'm always trying to learn about that, you know. Um, still haven't figured that all out, you know, have <laughs> any of us, I don't know. Um, so that kind of thing, but also just, uh, you know, always working on ways to be better in relationships at work relationships, you know, with kids, mm. um, and just, just with people. I just, it's something that, um, also I see a lot of young people who don't have confidence in themselves. They don't really know themselves yet. Um, they're still learning who they are and, um, kind of, kind of how, who they want to be in the world. And it, it causes a lot of confusion. Um, there's a lot of people who, yeah, they're just trying to find their way. And so being able to kind of reflect on yourself and get support in growing as a person, I think is really important. Mm, excellent. Yeah, I love that. Last thing I want to mention before, ask you about before we move on. Um, I saw somewhere that you referred to as a transformational social sector leader. What does that mean? <laughs> Um, that means that uh, LinkedIn uh, requires lots of snappy language about ourselves. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, you know, what? first of all, social sector leader, I mean, I've been working in the nonprofit space my entire career. Um, you know, I've done different uh, forays into the private sector on, you know, when I was home on breaks during college or grad school and things like that. But for the most part, my professional life has been in the social sector. And 
when you know when I t we talk about transformation, I think you know there's a lot of jobs in the nonprofit sector. They focus on social services and trying to improve you know the social and economic status of people's lives. But what I've always really tried to focus on is you know it's not just about carrying out a service or you know sort of uh, you know working with a certain population. It's really about you know how do we get how do we how do we create change? How do we act as agents of change? Mm. What are the what are the uh, the areas in people's lives that where they need to be empowered around their own change? And a lot of times it's it's just a training or a capacity building issue. Um, sometimes it's really looking at organizations and figuring out how to make them uh, work better internally and be more effective and efficient. So. For me, transformation is really about um, constantly improving and getting better, but actually affecting real change in the world. It's it's um, it's a privilege to be able to have worked in places where I could see that close up, and I could see how, for example, you know, um, a woman learning new planting techniques, uh, for example, in conservation agriculture, which I used to work in, you know, teaching teaching women how to uh, conserve soil, do different planting techniques that yields better crops, more healthy, better crops, and seeing how that can transform someone's life life at a you know you know very real level. Oh. That's like it's a, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to see that mm -hmm. awesome. be a part of it. And to, it's got to be like unbelievably rewarding. You know, most people just go to their nine to five, you know, and at the end of the day, they go home and they do the same thing the next day. There's not a whole lot of reward there, unfortunately. Whereas what you are doing is the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those, it's just, it really is a calling. I think there's a, there's a vocational aspect to it for sure. And it's just, it has always, I, I, I still do it and I'm still involved in, in this sector because it always brings something new and it's um it's uh something that yeah it's very satisfying it's very fulfilling yep. I, I, I have a quick question for you amy so you mentioned sort of transformational social sector leader uh, snappy language but sort of <laughs> a, being an agent of change is what you said um couple things there immediately my brain thought to myself man change just the word change like for a lot of people is scary right like we don't want that unknown we don't want to change we're stuck in our ways uh, people can be very traditional and conservative or different terms out there and I guess I do you have any thoughts about have you ever do you ever get opposition to transformational change because people are say opposed to change or is there and and then I'd couple that with it like over all of the years that you've been doing nonprofit work, do you think that it's gotten better? Has it gotten worse? I'd love to just hear a little bit more about this change and, and kind of that experience, you know. Yeah, Any thoughts? you know, I think, you know, in terms of opposition to change, I, yes. Um, especially when you're talking about organizational change, when you're talking about managing change inside an organization. What does that mean? It means improving systems, improving way of doing things, um, increasing the level of excellence and, and expectation about what people, you know, what we need to bring to the job and what we need to deliver on the job. And so, you know, when you're looking at changing inside organizations, you, you know, there's always resistance to that. Some people just understand um, and get on board right away. You know, there's, there's sort of that change diagram where it shows, you know, 
different people's reaction to change. Some people get on board right away. Some people sort of wait and see. Some people resist, but then finally kind of become resigned. And then other people just say, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. And they leave, you know, so you, um, it's, it, so, so no, yeah, there is, there is sometimes opposition to change, but in terms of working in communities, uh, around the world and global communities in different countries and different sectors, you know, it's amazing. Um, it, it, one of the, one of the groups that I've worked a lot with is farmers, smallholder farmers and, um, farmers by their very nature are, um, I'm not going to say resistant to, resistant to change. They're just very skeptical and for good reason, right? I mean, uh, this is their livelihood. If they're subsistence farmers, they don't have a very high margin of error. So if somebody comes along and says, oh, you know, look, if you plant this way and you space it this way and use this kind of, you know, uh, you know, natural fertilizer to do this and that, um, you know, they, they need to wait and see. So it's about, uh, it's about uh, a lot of, what we would do is use like a demonstration plot where you d literally do take a season to demonstrate to those farmers they you know they're doing it themselves and they see the result the improved result of their work and they're like wow and you know i've been in the field where i've said hey um how much did you plant using these conservation ag methods last year well so many hectares well, how many are you going to plant this year? And it's like double the number because they, they realize that it really matters. So, you know, you, it's really about meeting people where they are. And it's also about not ramrodding change down people's throats. I think there's a way of, of creating change or of, of, of um, you know, facilitating change in people that brings people along. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Really good. On that note, let's talk about uh, Cadasta. Yes. Um, yeah. Something that I am really excited to hear about and hear more about, I should say. I wasn't aware of this until, you know, Nick made this introduction. So uh, I'm going to let you have the floor on this. Just tell us what Cadasta is and why is it innovative and who is it helping? Yeah. So Cadasta was founded in 2015. We are a nonprofit organization um, and we are a leading global land technology and services platform to advance land and resource rights. And what that means is we help communities affordably and easily document, map, and secure land and resource rights at scale. Mm. So um, I'll just give you an example about what that looks like globally. So since 2015, well, 2015 is when we were founded. We did a couple of strategic pivots on our technology. Uh, right now we're an Esri-based platform, um, and we, we launched that. Uh, after I started as CEO, we launched that in 2019. And since then, we have mapped and documented the rights of 6.7 million people wow. in 47 wow. countries. Uh, that is people living in 4,454 communities. And um, we have 103 partners on the ground that are organizations working in the space with us. And um, that represents 21.7 million hectares of land. Only 20? I mean, God, 21.7 million hectares of land. So we're making progress. We're making wow. progress. But let me tell you, there's a long, long, long way to go. Yeah. It's a big globe. <laughs> it's a big globe. Hey, it real is quick. A, yeah. is, is this digitized? Yeah. Are, are so, you, oh, so, yeah, yeah. Describe so, it, please. Yeah. So basically what the, what the Cadasta platform is, is um, it is the a suite of GIS 
and digital technologies. And as you were saying uh, before the show started, Rex, using phones and tablets, smartphones, and tablets, um, in the field where we are training people, we're training partners on the ground and community mappers on the ground to capture uh, boundaries, community boundaries, land boundaries, parcel information, um, household level information. So documenting not only the geospatial shape file, you know, shape of the land and, and walking boundaries of the land or capturing it digitally, but also what is the relationship between the land and the people living on the land and capturing the household level information. So we are a GIS technology suite, but we also provide services around training and how to use the technology to advance land rights. Fantastic. What kind of countries? Where where have you been working? Give us some ideas. Yeah, so we do quite a lot of work in India, uh, working oh. with forest rights. Wow. Um, there are indigenous and tribal communities in India. Um, <clears throat> they're very remote areas around forests, and so we're working with several partners on that. Um, we also have done work in um, quite a lot of work in uh, in, in that part of the world, we've done some in Bangladesh and Nepal as well. And then um, in Africa, we we have worked in Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda. Uh, right now, we've got some work in Togo, Malawi, uh, Mozambique. So quite a lot in Africa. Um, I won't go through the whole list. And then in Latin America, we've been working in Colombia. We're trying to get a new project started in Ecuador. Um, and um, it, actually in Latin America, we, we've done a bit less, but we're starting to expand it uh, because we're focused on the Amazon and indigenous wow. communities in the Amazon. Fantastic. So, Go ahead. Quick sir. question. Um, you said you're trying to get a new project started in Ecuador. What are the challenges um, you know, in, in doing so? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'll, uh, one of the things I, I wanted to add about Kadassa, and then I'll get into the challenges, is um, so what makes us innovative is that, you know, for centuries, top-down land systems have not yeah. reached uh, vulnerable communities. And, and it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the yeah, yeah. Mesopotamia in 2300 BCE actually had measures to protect the poor. That's incredible. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, they lost that mandate. <laughs> um, but you know, government land systems just have not been able to be responsive to um, populations that are marginalized and remote. And so those top-down land systems have not worked. And frankly, uh, there's a statistic by the World Bank that says 70% of land in, in developing economies is undocumented, yeah. meaning that 70% wow. of the people who live on these lands do not have any kind of formal land document. And so... Um, what's innovative about what we're doing is that we're doing bottom-up approaches, what we call fit-for-purpose land administration, that it combines not only GIS technologies that are accessible and affordable to the users, but also expertise in land administration. Our team has come, um, several members of our team come out of that space and have expertise in working with governments on uh, land administration. And then also just a community uh, development approach, which which basically means that our goal is to enable 
the capacity of communities to map, document, secure their rights, right? So we're not doing the documentation. We're not doing the mapping. We're training others on how to do it. And bringing those three things together, technology, land administration, and community development together, that's what makes Cadasta innovative. And so in a place like Ecuador, where we're working, we're talking right now with some um, indigenous, uh, an alliance uh, of indigenous peoples in the Amazon, um, you know, they have so many challenges around, uh, well, first of all, not having formal recognition for their land, but mm -hmm. also one of the biggest threats to indigenous communities globally, and frankly, to all of us as humans, is illegal encroachment on these lands with uh, mining, and not just illegal, actually legal and illegal, mining, you know, petroleum, uh, mineral, so minerals, petroleum, uh, energy projects, uh, timber, you know, logging, where companies or governments or even illegal actors will come in without permission, without what we call free, prior, and informed consent of these communities, we call it FPIC, without the, the informed consent of these communities and, and basically go in and destroy the environment, you know, take out the resources, poach the wildlife. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. So um, as far as this, the challenges of these communities is, you know, how, how can they how can they use technology like GIS technology not only to demarcate or map their community boundaries and try to get legal rec government recognition, but how can they use that data and that information to protect, monitor and protect their land from these kinds of activities? Yeah. It, anytime I, I hear, uh, especially in terms of indigenous, um, I, I always think um, indigenous rights and environmental protection and these sorts of things. I always think back, um, you probably are pretty familiar with the, the story about the Navajo generating station. In the 1970s, they built a large uh, power plant up on the Navajo Nation in, in northern Arizona. And, like Page, I mean, Page, Arizona, that's area I used to travel a lot. Hmm? Yeah. Tell, tell us ahead. about it, T-Rex. you remember well, all that? All, yeah. all I know is they shut it down Sexy recently because it, so, it was so polluting that they had to shut it down. But you could see the smoke. It was just, you'd, you'd have this beautiful hmm. Lake Powell, and all of a sudden this gray-black, uh, it was horrible. Anyway, go ahead. No, it's just I, exactly that. I, and I'm pretty sure when they built that, they that they were not being totally truthful to the you know the the Navajo Nation at the time, and probably giving them all these benefits and things. And the next thing you know, this this monstrosity is built in one of the most pristine areas on Earth. So yes. I don't know. Maybe a side tangent, and I digress a little bit. But it's it's unfortunate to hear these things. And another thing I, I was just thinking about. I had a student. Um, he did a project in Mexico about five years ago. His name's Cesar. Long story short, he similarly, it was all his town in Mexico, uh, they, they, they actually harvest this nut that's like a coffee alternative. Um, but his whole project was they don't have any boundaries. They don't know where the farms are. They don't know where the trees are. They don't know. So it's very, very like just tribal, for lack of a better term, tribal knowledge, in, you know, generations of people going and doing this. But he showed them with like uh, a $600, $700 drone and a little bit of mapping, they were able to map out their lands and so they could get on crop rotations. They were able to map out their, where the, uh, the, the trees were with the nut. And it's just, 
how and and then he documented the change that that brought to this community and it was mm. monumental change because they were able to increase production of what they made to the point where every family member in the community was doing better and that's wow. all getting back to mapping demarcation understanding these relationships you know if you don't know where things are it's like tobler's first law of geography says things that are closer are more related so if you don't know where you are on the map, how can we that make those relationships, right? So no, I just it's it's mm. especially close to my heart as well. And um, so you mentioned these different places and these different people. Um, you I know you've mentioned uh, some things in your bio about like especially advocating for women's rights and things. Any thoughts on on how this plays into maybe gender as well? Yeah, you know, land rights for women is a huge, huge, huge issue. And over half of the countries in the world, and this is just a statistic out there, over half of the countries in the world have laws or customs that block or undermine women's rights to own land. Yeah. Okay. And so what what is the impact of that? Well, first of all, um, tenure insecurity means that a family is living... On a, on a piece of land and they, they feel insecure about uh, their land, but they feel insecure because they fear that they are going to be evicted, their land's going to be taken away, they, they, you know, they worry and they, they, they're concerned about the loss of that property and that land. And so um, what the research shows is that if you give a woman, if you, if you give a woman a land right, you put the woman's name on the land title or you put it either together with her husband or on on the on the title her own title um it has significant impacts not only on you know securing that asset and making her feel more secure mm. it has a huge impact on her ability to earn an income because you know Think about this. If you if you're a smallholder farmer and you don't own your land and you're there's conflict in your area and there's land grabbing going on, you're gonna have somebody stay at home. You're gonna stay at home, or you're gonna have somebody in your family stay at home and never lose leave the property for fear that somebody's gonna come and possess it. So just think about the lost livelihoods of of, of that situation where people can't go out and earn a productive living because they're sitting there trying to protect their property, which they have no, you know, formal rights to, but it also has a, a, a really significant impact on the nutrition of the family because women will take uh, extra income and invest it in nutrition, education, uh, savings, also, having a land right empowers women to make decisions in the home. It is a it is a tool for women's empowerment and agency. Mm. And so, um, it's not just enough to you know go out and demarcate land and say, okay, you know, here's you know here's your your family title. It is of utmost importance to ensure that women are included and have equal access to land as men. And let me tell you, in a lot of countries, women's inheritances are robbed from them. Yep. From wow. from their own, like say for example, there's a, a woman who's married, you know, gets married, moves into her husband's community. Uh, her husband dies, she becomes a widow. It may, very often the, the family of the husband will come and take the land and say, you have no rights, this is our family land. Yep. Oh, 
That's and horrible. so they will they will they will basically rob that inheritance and so trying to put mechanisms into place to avoid that from happening and to proactively ensure that women have access to land is a big part of what Cadasta does. Mm. I have a quick question. What's give us some examples of the government and the municipalities and the bureaucrats either resistance or acceptance? Tell tell me your experience. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you a story uh, of this town in Brazil that I I visited last year. Um, we are working with this cool organization in Brazil called Espaço Feminista. It's a women's uh, empowerment, women's rights organization. They do a lot of advocacy, and um, Espaço Feminista was looking at um, the state of Pernambuco in Brazil. It's in the northeastern part of Brazil uh, in this town municipality called Bonito and really looking at the socioeconomic conditions for women in that area and and it sort of came uh, landed on the fact that most of these women in the outskirts of this municipality did not have any property rights. They didn't have any land and property rights for the homes. They, some of them had been living in those homes for 30, 40 years. Um, but they didn't have that. And, and they, they did a, a study on the economic and social impacts of that. And they realized, hey, let's work to try to formalize this land. So to make a long story short, they worked with the mayor of that municipality and they, they organized the women and got the women sort of educated about their rights and about this government program where they could formalize their, you know, get their land titles. And they went through a very systematic process to, they were using paper at the time. They were paper, you know, paper documentation, you know, sketch mapping on CAD and all this other stuff. It took two months to gather all of the information on one household to be able to submit it for a land title. Well, um, the mayor was really interested in expanding the work. We got involved as Cadasta, and we brought our, you know, our Cadasta platform, the the GIS platform in, and and uh, tablets and phones. And what took two months to document one house was reduced to an hour. Wow! Yeah. I, see, I can totally see that. Digital. Not only yeah. that, what was super yeah. cool about it was we trained community mappers. We trained young people in the municipality who got paid by the municipality to go out and do this house uh, you know household by household data collection and we also worked with you know the notary and we worked with an architect and you know there's a lot the brazilian law was like super onerous to get this lots of processes but the bottom line is the mayor was so committed to it uh that he's continuing to to expand that work and that is the example of of what it looks like when a municipality, a government gets on board and facilitates it. And I went to a ceremony where they were handing out these titles to these uh, women. We It was 150 families who got their titles that day. And it was so amazing. I mean, they were crying, you know, they were literally in tears and, you know, saying like, I never dreamed that I would be able to, you know, feel secure about my land. And I've always been afraid that, you know, somebody's going to come take it. And so, that just the the incredible relief and happiness of these women, but also what was super cool about that project because Espaso Feminista was so good at uh, at, at educating and and, and um, helping these women understand their rights when they when all was said and done, 
of the, all of the titles that were issued that day, 85% of them had women's names on the document. Oh, wow. So either until so 50% of those titles were women alone. They had the sole, they were the sole landholder and another 15% were jointly titled with their husbands. That is like unheard of. Hey Kent, real quick, let's talk about extreme aerial productions. Let's do that. Also known as EAP, they are passionate about capturing the perfect shot. Founded in 2014, Extreme Aerial Productions is a professional aerial drone, video, and photography company based right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. From the ground to the air, they capture it all from scanning to BIM, from topo to design. They've got you covered. Uh, yeah, they really do. They work in all 50 states are FAA approved for commercial drone operations and backed by the best aviation insurance money can buy. They have the highest grade drone equipment available, meaning their clients receive the most professional photography and videos. And I don't think I'm making this up, but if you book more than one flight, you'll actually get a date with the one and only Mark Taylor. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> to find out more, go to extremearialproductions.com. That's awesome. I'm curious, like in these municipalities, like the one you just use as an example, um, prior to having like these land titles established, did they have like a property tax system or is that something they were going to be like where I was going. migrating to once land titles are formally established? So I'm going to say that I am not a hundred percent sure, but probably not paying ta yeah. property taxes. And that is one of the levers to get governments on board, right, is, you know, hey, you know, this is creating an asset upon which you're going to be able to, you know, collect mm -hmm. local revenue and therefore have resources to improve the infrastructure and improve the, you know, all of that. And we worked on a really, really big project in India with a bunch of partners, Indian, it was an India, Indian NGO um uh, Indian organization Tata Trust uh, with the with the state government of Odisha State, and it they called it the world's largest slum titling project. It yeah. was one million people. Wow. It was two thousand. It was like one thousand eight hundred, you know, informal settlements. They call them slums, informal settlements, and this massive undertaking and. They used our platform, they used Cadastus platform to do the door-to-door -door data collection and collect all the demographic data on each household. And the results, the, what was cool about that project was um, the government of the state government, the governor of the state got a law passed through the, le the state legislator to create a, a piece of legislation for land titling and to create a document that the state could issue as a legal title. Yeah. So it was a very, um, really smart move. And, and what ended up happening was they brought a million people from informality into formality. Yep. And, yes. and oh. it, I went, I, I went and visited, um, one of the areas that they, that they were working and they, it was incredible. The infrastructure upgrades that had been made, people got, people got, a, a, um, a subsidy to, to improve their homes, oh, wow. they 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 brought in uh, improved roads, markets. They put in like water and sanitation. They put you know both public toilets and house to house um, 
toilets in the home and it was incredible and what was the foundation of that project they started with a land title yes it's the fundamental now here's interesting that's the carrot for the bureaucrats that sometimes throw up roadblocks if you tell them that this now becomes a very stable form of revenue collection because most of these developing countries have a value added tax which basically sells tax it's the most corruptible form of taxation you can get because first of all everything's done in cash a lot of stuff's done under the table and once you start having something that is digitized and your payments now become digitized for your property taxes and your public records and photographs and birth certificates and identity. Now you start to fight corruption because now you bring sunshine to the darkness. And that's where we start to see an evolution yeah. of society. I yeah. think, I think you, what you're doing is fantastic. It's really important. They, I heard a, I heard a statistic from transparency international that said that, the land sector is like the second or third most corrupt sector. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like, I think maybe police and uh, it's like number one or something like that, but like it is way up there in terms of corruption. And that is so true when there's no documentation of who lives where on what land and who, you know, who are the rightful owners. There is just, it is just rife for corruption. And digitize it is so that you can find it so it's it's transparent. I mean, here in, the, in Arizona, we go on a county assessor's map. We were just talking about this. You get the title of who holds title. If you got their address, you got you got whether they paid their property taxes. That's transparency. That's that's sunshine, yeah. and that's what we need to bring to the developing world. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff around. Um, you know, in the in the countries in which we work, one of the main concerns is like data privacy, privacy and security okay. of data. That is a huge issue. But anyway, I digress. I, I think Kent was going to say, well, go ahead. I was yeah, going to, like, <laughs> I guess devil's advocate. Um, I would have to believe that a lot of these people don't want anybody to know right. who they are yeah. and that they're there. They don't want to pay the property taxes. You know, they're yeah. parts of gangs and cartels yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So in that case, I would think that there's some danger involved with going door to door yeah. and saying I'm offering this, this. Yeah. And, and I have an idea for this. Okay. First of all, two things. Uh, if you want to remain invisible and anonymous and donate a million dollars, Oh, we love you. We support you. <laughs> Stay anonymous. If you want to be invisible and anonymous and steal a million dollars, not so good. So the point is people need privacy, but there also needs to be transparency. There needs to, we need to know, who owns what, yep. and if you're paying your property taxes, because guess what? That's part of being a part of the civilization. That's being a citizen is to participate. Get those roads, get the bridges, get the police, get the schools. That's what we want. And by the way, all the people who want to remain in the dark, slowly but surely, it's like a smile. You're going to see the missing tooth. You're going to see that land that never got registered, and you say, hmm, what's that? Right. And now we got transparency. I'm sorry, you were going to say something there, too. Did you have something there, Dr. Nick? I, I, for you, Rex, or, or Amy, I guess I was looking, kind of thinking back about this kind of in a historical approach, and 
we know that throughout time, land surveyors, for an example, uh, people would get into land surveying because uh, they were directly, that's directly related to boundaries, parcels, land ownership, and they would do that then to get into politics, right? Oh. So the, the famous example <laughs> is Abraham Lincoln gets yep. into politics by getting into land surveying. So that is historically what's happened in the West, let's say, <laughs> from kind of Middle East to Western culture in Europe into the America. My question is to you all, what, where did it change so that like, that didn't really travel out of Europe the same way, say, into South America, <clears throat> into Africa, that idea. And I just, any idea, any thoughts on the historical approach, like why land is in a different, like culturally in some of these places, it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to get to like a historical context here. Like why is it so different in different places of the world? A Amy, you want to go first? Because I've written a little bit on a book I'm working on. So you, you go first. Oh, man, you, you're going to have to bring the historical piece because <laughs> um, just FYI and full disclosure, I, I did not, when I started at Cadasta five years ago, I was not a land person. Okay, so it's been a huge learning curve. And um, one, of the, one of the things that I've learned is there, all around the world, the, there's a lot of vested interests in the in the land, in land surveying because um, you know they're the only ones for so long who have been the ones to go out and formally document land and and that's one of the reasons why the system isn't working. You can't take a you can't take a country like Uganda that needs to document a hundred million parcels of land and have twenty six land surveyors sitting in the <laughs> government office we you know we calculated that we looked at okay 100 million parcels of land you know however many surveyors there were this is how long it takes them this is how they're long their workflow takes and everything one thousand years i kid you not wow. to do the initial registration just the first time never mind subsequent transactions when you sell or whatever transfer your your land to your kids 1,000 years. Can you imagine 1,000 mm. years to document all the land in a place like Uganda where 85% wow. of it is undocumented? Yeah. yeah. It, job, it, job security. Incredible. Let me give you a quick history on this. Uh, uh, first of all, everybody gives a lot of tribute to the Romans because we got this Latin-based, you know, I mean, English, and but we also forget the Vikings. In 1800 AD, they came from Holland the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and they invaded, the Saxons invaded England. And guess what? Didn't, they not only plundered, they wanted land. They were farmers. And in, uh, on Ireland, they actually found an ancient Viking plat map hmm. where they laid out the different parcels of who owned what in 1800 AD. No, excuse me, 800. Now, here's what happened also is on William the Conqueror, who was also a Viking, a lot of people don't know that, when he invaded in 1066 the Battle of Hastings, they were fighting for land. And he took those barons that fought with him, who were Vikings, and he gave them parcels. And that's Northumberland, mm. and that's uh, Devonshire, and all these different shires. That the all Doomsday laid out book, the map. Right? Yeah. I think it, and, it was called the Doomsday Book. He, took, he started recording parcels to get, because he wanted to tax people. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. And then his, uh, when um, King Richard, the Lionhearted, died and King James 
John, Kim John took over. He tried to take the land of these guys that had fought in the Crusades and take their land and pay off the debt that he owed the Pope. And so those guys came together in a, a fraternal covenant, and we're talking about Knights Templars, and they said, we're going to band together to fight the king, and they beat the king, and they made him sign the Magna Carta. And that's the beginning, and therefore we transition into America, and George Washington was a, quote, surveyor. And he would go out and survey land and then sublease that to tenant farmers. And guess what? He, he had some land. He went to go check on it prior to the revolution. And people were squatting on his land. And he had no legal entity to enforce his land rights mm. to evict them. And therefore, he got a letter from Philadelphia that said, hey, we're going to have this Continental Congress. And one of his motivations for attending was to get some sort of entity to enforce land rights. So therefore, we have that bred into us from, from the British. Now, Spain... Not so much. They were always patrons. They had the landowners and they had the peons and they just had a whole different. So everything in South America, the Philippines struggles even to this day because of the foundation that was laid by the Spaniards. And so we've got to jump in and show them the benefit to the bureaucrats that they can collect money through property taxes. And that's, that's what I'm passionate about. Yeah. Hmm. And hence Cadasta. There we go. Yeah. Although <laughs> I do have to, I am going to interject one, one thought we haven't sure. touched on, which is, you know, that is a that is our sort of Western understanding of, of, of land and the purpose and the importance of property rights and sort of these systems and foundation of prosperity. But I do want to raise one interesting piece, which is looking at uh, community land traditional customary land, indigenous land, you know, the, the view of these communities around land is very different from ours. They have a very different cosmo vision where land mm. is a collective benefit. It's like, and, and I think there's been a lot of what, what has happened is not only have they been marginalized and not allowed to, you know, have, you know, get, claim their land, but there's also been this idea, like, we don't need to own the land. We don't own it. It's, 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 we're part of the land. The land is part of us. It's part of our lives and our livelihoods and our spirituality and our and, and everything that we do and our cosmo vision. And so we also have to adjust ourselves, you know, as an organization and, 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 and a strategy to secure land and property rights and resource rights is to respect uh, those uh, that cosmo vision and that way of thinking and respect the knowledge of the elders and the ancestors of these communities who who want who who by the way are the best protectors of the forest and Agreed. you know it, 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 there's a statistic that says that these indigenous communities and cut traditional communities they manage 50 percent of the landmass in the world and 22 percent of the world's carbon if in forests oh, wow. and yet they only only 10 percent of those lands are legally recognized and there's also tons of research and data that shows that on the lands that are being stewarded by indigenous peoples uh that is the best that has the best biodiversity it has the you know more carbon sinks you know less less deforestation it has way better climate and conservation outcomes than, than other types of land. So I just want to put a plug in for this idea of, yes, you know, in, in certain contexts, uh, there, there are ways to support individual family titles and rights, but there are some contexts in which we really respect, uh, you know, 
the indigenous viewpoint that it is community land and they want to keep it as community land. Mm. Hey, Kent, before we go any further, tell me about TopoDot. Well, before we get to that, let me mention that TopoDot has been a loyal contributor to the Geoholics since day one. And as a surveyor, you know the importance of maintaining quality control through your process. Uh, I just found out recently there is actually more than 6,000 users all over the world that trust TopoDot software to accurately extract topographic features from point clouds. Man, that's really cool. Like, uh, how can I find out more information? Well, first of all, I think all of our listeners should give them a call to get a demo on one of their very own projects and be ready to be blown away by their automatic modeling tools. Do they have a website? They do. For more information, simply go to topodot.com. And I totally agree with you, by the way. Uh, but uh, the vision also should be as a national forest and preservation of these sacred lands. And, and if you can get the mapping done and you know those boundaries, just like when you cross into a national uh, park, mm-hmm. you better obey the rules. I, I, I'm serious because the federal government is real serious when you start growing marijuana mm. on a federal land uh, in, the, in the parks. And we sure. all know, the, yeah. and the state parks and the different parks. Now, one issue here in Arizona is an interesting example is we have the tribal. And right here in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, the most expensive real estate in Arizona to the west of Pima Road is extremely valuable property. Everything to the east is an Indian reservation. And you have... Uh, what is known in economics is a uh, tragedy of the commons. And the tragedy of the commons is when everybody owns it, nobody takes care of it. Now, if you have a national park, you've got taxes, property taxes, going to enforce and to take care of the park and make sure that it doesn't get invaded Mm. and make sure that illegal logging isn't happening. So therefore, you now have the revenue to enforce the law. That's that's my point. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Amy, you mentioned that, I mean, you know, obviously there's no way in hell that you're having all these properties physically surveyed on the ground. Um, So I'm assuming you're using other geospatial tools, whether it be Google Earth or what have you. What are some of the technologies that you that you utilize to, uh, you know, prepare these these GIS uh, deliverables? Yeah. So you're you're right in that there's no way you can have uh, legal surveyors licensed surveyors out there doing every single parcel. That is the power of engaging community mappers. That is the power of training local organizations to train people who are, you know, living in the communities, who understand the communities, to to train them on these technologies. So we use Esri field maps. We use Survey123. We've used data, we've used Collector um, and, 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 you know, as as that you know, kind of evolved into field maps, we're getting more into that. Um, sometimes, if we have, if it's, if if um, some communities are already using some local, some data collection tools on open source, but uh, but what they really want to do is migrate that data into our platform, which is an Esri based uh, platform, to you know Art ArcGIS uh, online or ArcGIS Pro to to then be able to. Uh, migrate, you know, bring the data together, analyze it, visualize it, create stories, story maps to use for advocacy purposes and, and, and storytelling about the impact of the work. So we use a lot of different tools um, out there. And we also sometimes if we need better accuracy, for example, in an urban setting or to uh, be able to uh, uh, fulfill the, the legal requirements for that geospatial data, then we might like connect it to a Trimble Catalyst or 
some other kind of, um, I don't know, we, I, we haven't tried uh, any bad elf tools. I was going to say, I know this guy who has this new <laughs> that literally connects right to your phone for, for you know, hey, pennies on and, the dollar. And, and we want to work with nonprofits. Uh, yeah. You, you that's amazing. Know. And the man bun is completely <laughs> for free. Um, <laughs> Added bonus. Yeah, Added that's, bonus. That's, that's the value add. You know. <laughs> hey, no, seriously, we, we, you know, every context is so different. We have to be pretty open to what's going to work for that community. And, and the other pieces, you know, again, we're not doing the mapping. We're not doing it. We're enabling others to do it. That's why we have over 100 partners. Um, and, and that's why we've been able to scale in such a short time is because, you know, we're not scaling Cadasta and our team. We're scaling P, uh, groups on the ground. We're scaling with, with partners on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I good time to mention that Cadasta was awarded a Esri Sustainable Development Award last oh. year. Fantastic. Yep. This is a real yeah, deal. That was, yeah. that was super exciting. I mean, I, 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 it was, it was really exciting. And, you know, Jack Dangerman, the CEO of, of Esri has always been, he's been a big supporter and fan, uh, of Cadasta and, um, you know, has been really supportive of me, uh, per, you know, per, personally and professionally as well. And so it was great standing up on the stage That's and awesome. getting that award, uh, <laughs> Amy, do you do you know Linda Foster at Esri as well? Yeah, she she, does she the land records and uh, cadaster. Yeah, I, we've met. I have we have such a great we have a great team. Um, we have we have a great team that supports us. We're actually uh, Cadasta is a silver business partner, but we're also a nonprofit partner, and the nonprofit partner allows us to have this business model where uh, we can share. Uh, we're able to um share logins and we're able to that that's why we're able to uh deploy the technology into these communities because um we have we have a great partnership with them crowdsourcing yeah Yeah. real real quick fun fact um esri gives out certifications for nonprofit specialty and there (laughs) is only about 21 or 22 specialties out there and guess who's the only gps provider on that list Bad elf, yeah, yeah. So we, ah. really the we need to get tips for that certification. We've we've um we've actually thought you know part of a challenge of my team and the organization is that we're a really small team and we mm. are we are just we're bursting at the seams. Um, in fact, we're just hiring some some great new staff members now. Um, we have a very we have a pretty large project that's been funding by being funded by the UK government, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office in in the UK, and it is specifically to scale up the work with Indigenous communities and local. So so you know, as a small team, we, there's so many things we want to do, like get all the ESRI certifications and all the, the all that stuff. And sometimes we just get it's hard. It's hard sure. to free up the bandwidth for that stuff. Yeah, I'm good. Go I have a real quick question. On the other side of ad, uh, identification, are you getting scanning birth certificates, photographs? How are you uh, get, building a digital identity for the owners? How do you do that? Yeah, so it really depends on the context, the legal context of what's required and what type of land document it is. So, um, you know, at Cadasta, we work along what we call the land rights continuum. So if the left is, if the left hand side is never been documented and the right hand side is a full full title or deed 
we work everywhere in between. So say, for example, for a customary certificate of ownership in Uganda, which we've, we've been working with the government on and uh, civil society groups, uh, and we're continuing to scale that work, that does require, you know, there's very specific requirements. So there's, um, you know, there's, there's identity documents required. There's a photograph required of the, mm -hmm. of the landholder. So there's all these different things. And so it just depends on the context, but the beauty of using um, some of the Esri tools is that we can easily do that. We can easily, mm -hmm. you know, scan documents, attach documents, take photos, all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. So, Amy, it seems like these projects, in most cases, are huge undertakings. So, when you're when you're presenting these to be funded or whatever, like, how in the heck do you put a budget together? Yeah. You know, how it seems like these projects do they ever end? Is a project ever complete? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, we we have a lot of discussion is what what constitutes a project cycle, right? But usually, what it is is we 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 start off with a partnership agreement with. Our partner on the ground and so we are not b2c we're a b2b uh meaning that our our clients are really these sort of grassroots organizations ngos national level ngos e even i even international ngos sometimes who are working with communities so uh, we sign a partnership agreement that lays out a scope of work over a certain period of time it says what exactly what we're going to do what kind of technology access we're providing, what kind of services we're providing, and um, what all of our targets are. So, you know, we're trying to, let's say, for example, you know, our uh, we have a project right now that we're, we've just launched uh, to continue our work in Uganda. We're gonna be working in four sub-districts in Uganda to help document, map, and secure customary certificates of ownership for I think it's a hundred and twenty-five thousand people. Well, it's a total of hundred twenty-five thousand people. So, you know, uh, there are six people per household. So, can't remember how many households. So, there's a very clear scope of work, and we just try to estimate and budget out. You know, what is what what is the time requirement from our team on training, initial training. You know, different kinds of training that we're doing. Uh, do we have to take trips? Do we have to take do field visits? We're also doing some gender training to make sure, going back to the women's land rights, to make sure that women's land rights are sensitized within the project and that there is a, a real effort to make that happen. So we just try to, we budget by what we call level of effort. How much time do we think it's gonna take to get that job done and over what period of time? Wow. Yeah. And in, have you had buy-in from the title insurance industry? You would think that they'd be very, the utilities. I mean, there's all kinds of insurance industry, mortgage companies, finance. There, once we establish this, now you've got capital. You've got something that you can, you know, uh, leverage, you can borrow against. And yeah. you would think that there would be banking. I, I know I did a little bit of work in the Philippines and there are, and, and I think Google wanted to get the unbanked banked. So have you had any buy-in on that at all? You know, that's Rex, that's a great question. And, and you know, Cadasta is really more about the first instance of registration, if you will, right? <laughs> and we're working in very informal context. So we're trying to, we're trying to push toward, we're trying to push along that continuum of land rights to get to something that is actual, actual legal, you know, legal document. And so, 
from there though there's lots of those transactional things insurance you know subsequent transactions so like a land information system you know yeah. um, there's a lot of things and 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 so while I I see that those markets are there part of Cadasta's job is to figure out you know how far do we go in that sort of how far do we go in that land governance model, you know, that talks about, you know, property rights valuation and, ta you know, the, the, a lot of municipalities. Assessments, um, yeah. Assessment, all that. And so we're, we're not likely to get go down that road because there's such a huge need where we sit. Mm -hmm. But if you have ideas for a... Uh, for a, a wealthy titling companies that want to support this amazing <laughs> work. Hey, we, what we're doing is we're creating a pipeline. Yes, wow. you are. You're That's laying great. the foundation. You're becoming the county recorder's office. You're becoming the data. You are the digital data re repository of yeah. all this information. And believe me, it's valuable. People, yeah. Google wants it. Google yeah. definitely wants it. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm excited because I've made contacts with some of these organizations. I'm going to see if we can make some connections here. I'm getting chills right now because you're doing exactly what yes. Kent and I have talked uh, about for years. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for what yeah. you're doing. This is so exciting. T-Rex is T-Rex is going to sleep for a while. <laughs> I know. I, I'm ready to do backflips right now. You know, <laughs> and, little arms are like you know clapping together. I can't help it. I can't help it. Yeah. You no, it's super cool, time. and it, it's super cool, and, and and it's super exciting. There's a lots of opportunities, and and um, you know, it's been an incredible journey for Cadasta to to learn and figure out. You know, how do we get better and better at doing this? Um, and also we, you know, one of the big challenges is privacy and security of data. People mm, very yeah. rightly are very afraid of giving up their Absolutely. personal information. And so we made a decision as an organization very early on that we, with our partners, we have signed agreements that it is not our data. Yes, of course. It, we don't want it anyway. We want the county recorder's office to have the information for the county. That's sure. all we want. Sure. That's it. Yeah, yep. exactly. So. 100% ready to get some big donors lined up to support Cadasta's work. Well, I know, I know, I, I've been working on this for a few years, and I spoke with an individual that was connected with uh, Fidelity Title. Huge, huge organization. And they were over in actually the Philippines when I went over there. Interesting. And they were very interested in figuring out a way to create a county recorders, digitized county. They don't have everything yeah. in the Philippines is well, still yeah. paper. It's it's still, yeah. It would be, yeah. be in their yeah. best interest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 100%. What's so, what's so incredible about that is, you know, we see massive demand. So in Africa and Asia and Latin America, these, these national governments have devolved, have decentralized. So now you have all of these, you know, uh, regional, state level governments, district level governments, county level governments, sub district, all of these governments that have the, the role and the responsibility of, of, of documenting and allocating and managing land. And they have zero capacity to do it yeah. because there's no money, there's no resources, no training, there's no. And so what happens is Cadasta ends up being kind of a step stopgap measure. For yes. digitizing this information and holding it in trust, if you will, until these systems catch up. Exactly. And they're awesome. ready to you know? I'll tell you a real quick experience. I was over in the Philippines 2018, had a chance to meet with one of the mayors. It's an interesting system over there because the mayors get an extra bonus at the end of the year if they can show progress for their municipality. Huh. And we presented to them this idea of digitizing because I was working on a smartphone app and I'm still working on that. So the, where you use that. 
And the mayor said, oh my gosh, if you could do this for me, this would help me be able to collect property taxes because I don't know who lives where and I don't know who owns what and I can't collect anything because I, it's yeah. all, it's a, it's a fuzzy mess. Yeah. And so yeah. anyway, the point is they were excited, but they just didn't have the money to do it. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, you know that just one other thing I'll throw out there is that one of the things we could ask us started getting into because of this demand for like functioning land systems is we started we we also have part of our part of our organization part of our business is advising governments around how to create more equitable more functional land systems so yes. for example we're working right now um, in with the government of Malawi uh, it's funded by the Millennium Challenge Corporation it's a US government agency that supports um, you know development projects in, in in other countries and you know in Malawi is you know what 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 would it take to create a, a, a national land authority? What would it take to you know they there we're 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 put it we put together a cost methodology for you know how to cost something like that out. What does it all include? What's it what is it, what needs to be done? And so, you know, it's it's it we what we realize is you know the top down system never worked the way it's supposed to, but the bottom up system is completely dependent on government to formalize rights. So right. we can't just say, well, we're going to do it bottom up and suddenly we're going to be like, you know, issuing all these land rights. It doesn't work like that as we know. So what our role really is, is bridging the gap between what happens at the community level and what happens at the government level and bridging that gap to get the job done. That is really what we're focused on. So we have to be, we have to understand top-down systems and what they need to be functional and do better but we also need to be working on the ground to help those communities get what they need to get their data into the system and get the 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 land documents issued. Yeah, yeah, and I'm assuming when you put these proposals together, um, you have to show a return on investment as That's well, it. correct? Yeah. You know, it depends on the donor, but you know, a lot of times it's. I think what the big thing is, we have to show evidence of impact. What does okay. it matter? Gotcha. What does it matter that Cadasta goes in and does X, Y, Z? Is it faster? Is it better? Is it cheaper? Is it more efficient? Are we creating more equitable systems and more equitable, um, you know, opportunities for people? And then the other question is, well, so what if somebody, so what if we document their land? Is it leading to an actual format, formal land, right? And, and if it does, then how does that impact this family? Do they have, you know, better incomes? Do they have, you know, so it's a lot. It's a lot to have to be able to say, hey, this is why it matters. This is what we're doing about it. And and by the way, here's the evidence that it actually works. Yeah. And it's, it's it, we have to be very rigorous about how we collect and report data on that. Yeah, interesting. I have an anecdotal sto story again from the Philippines. When we were having this conversation, the concept was you've got a piece of property that's 100 feet by 200 feet. Now you have a rectangular boundary and you know how many square feet are there and you're going to charge 10 cents, a dollar. And so we showed the math to the bureaucrats of the money that could be generated just in their municipality mm. if we could map and identify. And by the way, even at 10 cents a square foot, they, their eyes blew out. They were amazed at the potential revenue. And so th there was a motivation. Now, what we had to do, though, they wanted us to do a test case first. So you, in other words, you have to do a little bit of mapping and start showing how this comes together. Anyway, the point was they got excited. Anyway, they, the point they, was, were, they got excited. They, 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 were, <laughs> they, they were ready to go. They were ready to go. 
Sorry, we got a little bit of echo. Oh, are you back on? Amy, are you there? Okay. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I thought that was uh, Nick's man bun one. Uh, no, <laughs> I think that was that, that was, was your kitty cat. Yeah. Right. It was. I, I had to let him out of the, his misery and let open the door and let my cat out. He's like literally crawling all over me, crying. So. Well, my anyway, man bun just whistles in the wind. I don't know. Man. <laughs> <laughs> like a dodging bullet. Oh man. Uh, yeah, if we can show the if we can show the governments the benefit and the the end result, and if we can show the title companies and the mortgage companies and all the guys with the money. I think we could get some funding for this. I think if we could get the UN involved, we could get our government. Because guess what? We're putting billions of dollars into guns when in billions of dollars into stabilizing. Everybody in the whole world needs a home. Everybody needs a secure domicile because you can't... You yeah. can't have a country without that. Yeah. Look at COVID. Look at COVID and how important it was for people to shelter in place and be in place. Can you imagine people that, I mean, millions of people in India left the cities and literally might walked back to their 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 villages of Crazy. origin. It's incredible yeah. because yeah, wow. they didn't have, you know. But anyway, one, I think, I think we need to come up with a new tagline. I think I, I'm going to draw some inspiration from your high school uh from your high school nickname, Rex, Sexy Rexy. <laughs> I think we need to have a new tagline, which is making land rights sexy again. There you oh, go. There you go. <laughs> I love if, it. If you put sex in marketing, you get people's <laughs> attention, you know? <laughs> hey, and I, when I say again, it's because back in 2300 BCE, they had measures to protect the poor. There you the go. Poor. So we're going back to making land rights sexy again. Let, uh, that's our job. Yeah, land land rights and CPAPs. What? Land <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. <laughs> now, Dang! I, oh, wow. If you and if you contribute to Kadasa, you will sleep much better. One hundred percent. Let me touch on one other interesting thing. A lot of these developing countries, Mexico in particular, and I've done a little bit of research down there. They have what is known as squatter rights. And, and that means that if you don't protect your property and keep it locked up and watched, you have to have a guard guarding your property for, for 90 days. If, it lay, if it's vacant for three months, a total stranger can go get a constable or a police officer in that village to come watch <laughs> you kick the door in. Oh my and then God. you can move in. I, I have a personal friend who had this happen to their brother's house down in Guadalajara. And when he finally got, he was here in Arizona, he got back and found out strangers living in his house. He had to go find that policeman in particular to negotiate and administrate the removal of those people. And they took wow. the washer and dryer, wow. the refrigerator, anything that wasn't nailed down. And they had, and he had to pay them to move. Unreal. <laughs> so Crazy. That, so, wow. so that's why we need these, these property rights. We need these rights. Yeah, yeah. That's, no why they, that's why they pay caretakers to stay in that's the homes exactly and never right. leave. Yeah, you can't yeah. leave it unguarded. Yeah, Crazy. All right, before we let you get out of here, Amy, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, so what are you excited about in the next... Near future, one year, five years. What you got so much going on? I'm super excited about the idea that we can move the needle on indigenous land rights in the Amazon, for example, or or in other other parts of the world. That we can we can start to build the capacity of partners around the world who do what we do and take take our platform, train others, you know, get people using the platform, and that you know 
ultimately building that capacity so that it can really go to scale because it's still small potatoes compared to the problem out there which is one billion people in this world are tenure insecure over right. one billion people are afraid they're going to lose their homes our land in the next five years and guess what they're trying to move someplace like the united states like canada like england like anywhere in europe where they can be safe and if we don't get them these rights mm. they're coming and we've got to help them stay we've got to help them Good point. Well, I mean, people are tied to their land. It's their home. It's their life. It's their livelihood. It's it's you know, why would anybody want to leave if they don't have to? And and I think that's you know that's true. And we we want to support we want to support people feeling secure in their place and in their homes. Yeah, and democracy works better when you have individual property owners with a vested interest in that country, in that community. They want their country, they want their county, they want their city to run right because that's where they live. Mm. Wow, on that note, (laughs) that was pretty powerful. Um, Nick, you got anything else, buddy? Uh, I've just been Google searching uh, the fastest way to order a CPAP machine so I can close everybody out. Uh, apparently, I can have one here tomorrow from Amazon, and Amazon knows exactly where my parcel needs to uh, be shipped. There you go. Have, because uh, you oh, we're gonna see, you, we're gonna see a whole new Nick on the next podcast. He said, maybe even the man gun bun will go away. He'll be feeling so confident in himself. Oh, <laughs> no, I. Amy, it's it's been a pleasure. I mean, we we got to meet in the Netherlands, and now I know so much mm. more about all the so things cool. that you're doing. And uh, just really glad to to have this conversation. It's so important, you know. And it's to use your word, it the potential of transformality, like to really have a monumental impact on people's lives. Is it's really neat to see and. Um, you know, keep up the good work. Let us know if you how the geoholics can you know assist. And um, again, keep 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 on the good fight. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome. Good and job. If, it's if been you have, such a pleasure. If you have job descriptions and you need people, uh, let me know. I have lots of uh, people out there that I think would love to work with your organization. So. Oh, we'll do. Yeah, we we are growing, and that's cool. And it's been so much fun, guys. I was like. Oh, these are these guys are celebrities. They're like the geoholics. I mean, you know, after a few Way podcasts, you guys had me hooked. So how exciting to be on your show! Oh, thank well, you so much. Pre- yeah, yeah. And oh, FYI, I sent the men's health uh, the men's health one with uh, Tess to oh, yeah. my husband, and I was like, "You have to listen to this. I love that you cover health issues and men's health. I, that's so super cool." Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Tessa did a great job for sure. Yes. Um, one final question that we ask everybody, uh, do you have a mantra that you live by? Yeah, I would say that my mantra is, you know, you only have today. Live it well. Good job. Mm, love that one. Very good. Love that one. You don't have tomorrow, that's for sure. <laughs> nope, we don't. Uh, None of us do. No, no. Well, that's awesome. Thank you again, Amy, for your time. Anything else there? Well, we're good to go. T-Rex? Yeah, thank you so much. T-Rex, yeah. Sexy Rexy. Thank good, you guys so good much. Good work you're doing. Good yep. work. Yep, yep. Thank you, everybody. Hey, Nick, thanks again for uh, bringing Amy to the Geoholics, another quality guest, no doubt about it. Um, with that, let me see if I can pull this off here without producer Sean. All right, here we go. We'll close out music. Ooh. Bring that up. Yep. Gypsy Kings. <laughs> Adding value and making Let's do some salsa. I'm glad you guys like the music. <laughs> yep, great choice. Rumba. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Adding value and making friends. That's what we do. If anyone would like. land right sexy again. That's right. And there CPAPs. Come on. <laughs> There's CPAPs all the way. If anybody would like to be a guest on a future show or have any uh, topical ideas, shoot us an email at info at thegeoholics.com. Gypsy Kings. Bambaleo. Available everywhere. Until next time, everyone. <sighs> be safe and healthy. Sounds great. <laughs>